breakfast this morning. Genesis chapter number 14. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 8. The Word of God says, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, the same is Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim, with Ketelaomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you bless your word this morning. A sermon can be preached, an invitation can be given, Lord, and folks can even be in the altar. But Lord, without your presence, without your power, it's all been in vain. So God, I pray that you would do a work in hearts that would not soon be forgotten. Lord, that you would stir and move according to your will and for your glory and honor. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. If there's any amongst just lost and undone, show them their greatest need, that need of Calvary. We'll be sure to thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now this morning, I want to preach to you for a few moments on a picture that I see in the passage that we've read before us. Do you know that the Bible teaches that every bit of Scripture has its culmination in the person of Jesus Christ? The Word of God tells us that all of the Old Testament truths are written for our admonition. In other words, I know some folks that would be fine if we just took and lopped off everything before the book of Matthew and threw it away. But that would be very unwise to do because the Word of God is for us, Genesis to Revelation. Every bit of it is for you and I. It may have not been written to you or I, uh, but every bit of it is for you and I. We can all gain something from the Word of God. Christ made this statement uh, to the Pharisees. He said to search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. He said, they are they which testify of me. The Word of God says about Christ prophetically uh, that he would say, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So all through the Word of God, you'll find pictures of Jesus Christ. You know, God is so sovereign, God is so mighty, Uh, God is so wise that He's able to take the circumstances of human individuals and uh, and uh, cause them to take place in such a way that they would teach us spiritual truths that maybe we couldn't gain in any other way. It's been many a young person and many a young Christian that's learned the great truth of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ from that night in Exodus when the blood of the Lamb was put upon the doorpost. Don't you agree with that this morning? It's been plenty of folks that have learned the great and beautiful truth of Christ coming for His bride with the story of Isaac coming 
for Rebecca. It's been many a person that's learned a great and beautiful truth concerning Christ's love for his church in Adam's love for Eve there in the book of Genesis. And all through the Word of God, you'll find these pictures of great truths concerning Jesus Christ. And it's such a truth this morning that I want to take a few moments and preach to you. Now, we've read about a man by the name of Lot. We don't know very much that's good about Lot. We hear uh, over in the book of Second Peter that he vexed his righteous soul daily uh, with hearing and seeing the things, the wicked things uh, that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah did. The only thing we really know much about Lot's life was that it was a failure. Uh, we uh, see the carnality that seemed to permeate his everyday existence. We see that Lot, when given a choice, uh, whether to go with God or whether to go with that which would benefit him, uh, he chose a better place to raise cattle than he did to raise children. Uh, he pitched his tent towards Sodom and allowed an open door for Satan to have an influence in his life. And so we don't know very much good about Lot. I'm sure that if uh, the story was written about me, you'd mostly know about my failures too. But we find in this passage before us that Lot has gotten himself caught up in a battle between nine different kings, four on one side and five on the other. Do you know that as I read this passage, I see that Lot is a very good picture of the lost sinner and his condition when he's born in this world. You know, you and I, we were born into the same kind of condition that Lot was. Let me show you a couple things. I want you to notice, first off, his confederates. Now, the reason Lot was caught up in this war was because he had been living in Sodom. The reason that Lot, it's not necessarily that Lot had any personal vendetta against these kings, but you see, there is such a thing as guilt by association. Lot had been living in Sodom, and so when Sodom went to war, Lot went to war with them. And I want you to notice some of the confederates that are spoken of. Five different men. Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. That don't tell you a whole lot except what they were kings of, but look at verse Verse number 2, and notice a couple names here. The Bible says that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemabir, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. Now, some of you are saying, well, preacher, that's not very fascinating to me. Uh, I'm surely not going to pick a Bible name from a young person there. Not going to name them Bela or Bersha, and I'm glad that you wouldn't, because if you were to know the names of those kings, you'd find out that it's greatly significant. The name Bera literally means a son of evil. He was the king of Sodom. The name Bersha literally means with iniquity. He was the king of Gomorrah. The other names have significance, but it's sufficient just to notice those first two. You say, preacher, what are you driving at? I'm wanting you to understand the company that Lot naturally ran with. He naturally ran with those which were wicked and those which were in the midst of iniquity. Now, let me ask you something. Is that not a picture of the sinner before Jesus Christ? Sometimes we get awful uh, sore at sinners for acting like sinners. You ever notice that? Sometimes we look around at this world full of lost and unregenerate people, and I still believe that there's more on their way to hell than there is on their way to heaven. And there's Bible for that, friend. Uh, Christ said that uh, straight and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life everlasting. Few there be that find it, but broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go therein. There's still more folks on their way to hell than there is folks on their way to heaven. And we wonder why the world is in such a mess as it's in. The truth is, a sinner can do nothing but act like a sinner. He may be a moral sinner, he may be an immoral sinner. But at the end of the day, he can only do that which his flesh provokes him 
to do. That's all he knows. And we get all upset sometimes. We say, well, I don't know why the politicians act that way. I'll tell you why they do, because they're unregenerate. That's why. Now, maybe not every one of them, although sometimes I wonder. <laughs> I hope there's some that have truly been born again. Uh, but uh, the vast majority of them, I'd say most of us would have to agree by the testimony of their life, uh, by the, uh, the, by the uh, opinion of their actions, by the way that they vote, by the things that they run on. It's evident that they do not know Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that they act the way that they do. No wonder. You look at the entertainment world. You look at Hollywood. Is it any wonder it's a cesspool of iniquity? You've got an entire group of people that are unregenerate, not only unregenerate, that are making a, live, a living off of iniquity. It's no wonder it's that way. See, that's what the lost man does. That's what he gravitates towards. When you were lost and undone without Christ, you gravitated towards that too. If it was wrong, that was where you was at. Now, some of you saying, wait a minute, preacher, you didn't know me. I was a good kid. Well, maybe you were. But even good kids do bad things. Don't you agree with that? I was telling them on Wednesday night, I was a Christian school kid. That's like right next to the devil in, in terms of wickedness. Uh, and uh, I was surrounded by good kids, but the reality of it is even good kids know only to serve their impulses. And we kind of learn how to get that under control a little bit as we get to be adults, but really it's not that anything's under control if we've never been born again. It's that we've learned how to hide it under politeness and manners. Every lost person is driven by his own personal ambition. He has no concept of the glory of God, no concept of doing things only for Jesus Christ. Uh, that's why he can only be moral. He cannot be spiritual. Uh, their confederates dictated that Lot was a lost man at this time, at least to some degree. I see in a picture of Lot, uh, a sinner as his confederates. But I want you to notice a second thing. Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. I want you to notice, secondly, his condemnation. I used terminology a moment ago that I want to give to you again, and it's that term guilt by association. You see, Lot went to war because Sodom and Gomorrah went to war. Because Lot had chose to cast his lot with Sodom and Gomorrah, he was judged along with Sodom and Gomorrah. He was given the uh, ability and the privilege to leave out from Sodom and Gomorrah. But listen now, if Lot had stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah, he would have perished just like the rest of them. And when, when Sodom and Gomorrah went to war, Lot went with them. Do you know that you may be a good person? And I understand, listen, it's a rainy Sunday morning. I understand that uh, most folks that just be getting out and going for somebody else or just getting out and going for kicks and giggles. They stayed at the house under the warm blanket. I understand that uh, probably just about everybody here this morning knows Christ as theirs. I hope that you do. If you don't, I hope that you get to know Him before you leave. I hope you come to know Christ as your Savior. But the truth of the matter is, for the lost individual, no matter whether he's moral or immoral, and if you're here today, no matter whether you're moral or immoral, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, then you have set yourself with the world and adverse to Jesus Christ. And as this world is judged, so will you be judged. Just as this world is condemned, so will you be condemned. Lot was guilty by association. He was in that crowd. He'd probably never done anything to uh, the kings uh, that were coming against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He'd probably never done anything against those kings. They probably didn't even know Lot's name. But because of the association that he had, because of what he had cast his lot into, because of who he had partnered up with, he was condemned right along with him. And there's a lots of folks, listen to me this morning, the vast majority of people that are on their way to hell are not murderers and thieves and robbers and adulterers. The va oh, there's some out there. Don't misunderstand me. 
But the vast majority are seemingly good folks. Seemingly good folks. You say, what about Lot? Was he a good person? Well, I don't know. He was Abraham's nephew. He had lived with Abraham and done so without contention for many, many years. Lot probably was a pretty moral person. But it doesn't matter if you're moral. It doesn't matter if you're a church member. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. None of these things matter. What matters is, have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? Lot had put his faith in that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice the third thing this morning. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says, And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. Notice their captivity. Now, here's where I really want to start preaching. Notice that Lot was literally held captive by the circumstances that he was in. You know, if there's ever a picture of the lost sinner, it's this right here. The Bible says of the Vale of Siddim that it was a place of slime pits. Boy, isn't that a picture of this world? Isn't that a picture of this world? A place of slime pits, a place of mire, a place of filth, a place of mud, a place of quicksand, a place where if the ground got its hold on you, there was very little chance that you were ever going to get away. You know, sometimes we forget what it was like before we got saved. We forget the, the pull that the world had on us. Sometimes we forget the fear that it was to put our faith in Jesus Christ, the fearfulness that accompanied it oftentimes to our flesh. You remember what it was like when you was worried that you was going to lose every family member, every friend, every person that loved you and cared about you, that if you made that decision, you'd... you remember what it was like when you thought you was going to lose those things that you needed so badly? You remember what it was like when you thought to yourself, I can't do without that sin. And it was as though it had gripped you and taken hold of you. And you had been taken captive by it. Lot had literally been taken captive by the enemy. The Bible says of the lost sinner that his eyes have been blinded to the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that it's your responsibility and my responsibility to carry that light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to them? They're blind. Don't expect them to do anything, uh, to respond anything spiritually to anything that you give them or tell them until they're born again. They can't. You might as well have a conversation with a dead man. You'll get about the same response. We spend a lot of time trying to have theological conversations with spiritually dead people. We spend a lot of time trying to reason and logic and I don't know, I don't know what the verb would be of logic. What would that be? Logicize? Logicize them? Logicate them? I'm going to say something goofy if I don't stop. Uh, <laughs> we spend a lot of time trying to reach them through reasoning and logic and philosophy. When the reality is that the problem is not necessarily that they can't understand, it's that they can't perceive. It's not that they don't have the mental capacity to understand the structure of theology. It's that they're lost and undone without Christ, and they cannot accept it until they have been, uh, they have been influenced and convicted by the Holy Ghost. Don't you believe that's true? You didn't know until the Holy Ghost convicted you. I didn't know until the Holy Ghost convicted me. You say, oh, preacher, are you saying some are predestined? No, I'm not saying anything's predestined. Uh, no, you see, the Word of God, the Spirit of God operates through the Word of God. That's the sword of the Spirit. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? That's the sword of the Spirit. Where the Word of God is applied, uh, the Spirit of God has the capacity to use the Word of God to convict the sinner of his lost condition. That's what happened in my life. That's what happened in your life. There may not have been a sermon being preached, but somewhere along the way, somebody had given you the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God was able to take that truth and apply it to your heart and open your eyes to your need of Calvary. And you said, almost like a light switch had been turned on, 
I'm lost. I need the Savior. We find in this passage a picture of Lot as the sinner by his confederates, his condemnation, and his captivity. But notice a second thing this morning. I want you to notice that in Lot we see a picture of the sinner. But we're told about this escaped man. An escapee. Can I call him that this morning? An escaped man. The Bible says there was one that had escaped. And in this escaped man, I would propose to you this morning that we have a picture of the saint that's been redeemed by the grace of God. In this man, we don't know hardly anything about him, do we? All we're told is he was one that had escaped. I think he's a picture of the saint by his characterization. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, the only thing we know about him is he's one that has escaped. If there was ever a fit picture of what a Christian is, that's it right there. He's one that has escaped. We don't know the man's name. We don't know his occupation. We don't know his standing in in society. We don't know if he was a wealthy man or or a beggar. We know nothing about him. The only thing we know, the only thing we're told is that he's one that got away when others didn't. Can I say that at the end of the day, no matter what your talents, what your abilities, no matter what your position, no matter what your standing, the greatest thing that anyone can say of you is that you're one that's escaped. You've been redeemed. You've been born again. You see, we put a lot of stock in a lot of foolish things. Don't you believe that? We put stock in titles. We we put stock in men's respect, quote, unquote. We put stock in a lot of silliness and a lot of nonsense. Do you know the greatest thing? If you're born again, the greatest thing you'll ever be is a Christian. Redeemed. I mean, this man, the greatest thing about his life, he had been through a battle. He had been in the slime pits. There were many that had been around him that didn't escape. But this man could say, I got away and I've been redeemed from the death. That had gripped me. We've got some, <coughs> excuse me, we've got some this morning that the greatest thing they can say about their life is that they've escaped. They've escaped. That's the great, really, if you were to sum up their testimony in a nutshell, you know what it would be? It would be, I'm one that escaped. There were some that didn't. I, I touched on this Wednesday night. Uh, we look around, our young people look around, and they see <coughs> all the ones that have escaped. They see the ones that got away. But they don't ever see the ones that didn't get away. There was an entire army that had perished in the slime pits. And some of you could testify to brothers and sisters and, and, and friends and co-workers and children that you grew up with that never did get away. They never did escape. But this man, his great testimony is, I was in it, but now I'm out of it. I was condemned, but now I've been redeemed. You say, what about these slime pits of the world? We get awful worried, and and I understand that. We ought to be worried. We ought to be burdened for lost sinners. Don't you think that? We ought to be burdened for lost sinners. But I'm fearful that sometimes we get overburdened. And what I mean by that is this. We get to the point of despair. You know where a burden needs to take you? A burden needs to take you to a place of discomfort, but not to a place of despair. We need to be so burdened that it interrupts our daily life. We need to be so burdened that it occupies our thoughts. There's nothing wrong with being a little uncomfortable uh, for the sake of a lost sinner. There's nothing wrong with having your day interrupted so that you can pray for him, so that you can witness to him. We ought to be at that place, but we ought not ever be burdened to the point of despair. And in this passage, we see that this man, he had got out of the slime pit. So you know what he knew? He knew that other folks could get out too. Can I tell you that our God is comfortable working in the miry clay? 
Didn't he pull you out of the miry clay? Uh, the slime pit may have a pretty strong hold on the sinner. Some of you have loved ones that are in that slime pit. You, you think to yourself, <clears throat> they're never going to get out. You think to yourself with the addictions that they've got, or with the money that they're making, or with the baggage that they carry, or with the relationship that they're in, you think they're never going to make it out. There's no way. It's just too strong a hold on them. But could I remind you that you are in the very type of slime pit that they're in when the Lord brought you out. You've forgotten the pull that the world had on you. You've forgotten the pull that the, the needles and the bottles and the relationships had on you. God was able to break that hold. God was able to redeem you. I, I think this man pictures for us the saint because we see in this passage his characterization. Let me give you a second thing. Notice not only his characterization, but I think he presents the, the saint because of his compassion. You know, I don't know about you. I know how I am, and I'm real carnal. <laughs> and I know that my first thought would have been, I'm going to get home, and I'm going to get a shower, and I'm going to get cleaned up, and I'm going to go see my family. But yet we find that this man, look what it says there in verse number 13. It says, And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. He said, They've taken captive your nephew Lot. You know what's interesting? You find this all through the New Testament. As soon as a person gets born again, they always have an immediate concern for those that have never been saved. Do you know that we have to, we have to allow the flesh to take hold of us to lose that burden? Boy, that ought to convict us this morning. We have to let the flesh take hold to lose that burden because every child of God, when they're saved, they're immediately conscious of the need of others to have Jesus Christ in their life. Surely this man could have said, hey, it's been a tough battle. I've barely escaped with my life. I'm going to go home. I'm going to kiss my wife. I'm going to hug my children, surely. But this man, when he left the battle, when he got out of the slime pit, the only thing he could think of is there's some poor, lost sinners that are back in that same condition I was in. And I've got to get out and I've got to go tell someone. They immediately become soul-minded. Go through the New Testament sometime. Soul-winning never had to be trained. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to teach folks to go through uh, the Romans road and teach folks how to, you know, comb your hair, uh, you know, put a piece of gum in, don't act like an idiot at someone's front door. I'm not opposed to that. But I'm merely saying that immediately there was always this desire to see people come to know Christ when a person was born again. The first thing that they did every time in the Gospels was they went home to tell. They went home. They went home. They went back to the slime pit. To tell somebody that God got me out, He can get you out if you'll put your faith in Him. I think because of His compassion, but notice thirdly, because of His compulsion. He didn't try to get Lot out Himself. Now listen now. He didn't try to get Lot out Himself. He went to Abraham to get Lot out. We find in this a picture of prayer. Because here in a moment we're going to see in Abram a picture of the Savior. You know... That when Ed, I, I think he's a picture of the saint because not only does he have this compassion to see Lot get rescued, but he knows the place to go to to make it happen. I remember hearing a story about a preacher one time. Many of you all knew Buster Seaton and you knew the name. And I remember hearing his little brother Jimbo tell a story years after Buster was dead that he, for a lot of years, that Buster had witnessed to Jimbo and witnessed to him and witnessed to him and witnessed to him. Jimbo was out in sin. He had no, no interest in the things of God. 
And he said that one day he was standing in their parents' driveway, and they had both been there to see their parents, and Buster had been witnessing to him and witnessing to him, and finally he'd give up, and he was getting ready to drive off, and Buster was, was in his car, and he, he pulled up beside his little brother Jimbo, and he rolled down the window, and with tears in his eyes, he looked at him, and he said, Jimbo, he said, from here on out, I'm going to do a lot less talking to you about the Lord and do a lot more talking to the Lord about you. We can accomplish so much more through prayer. We can accomplish so much. And I'm not, listen, folks need the gospel given to I'm not minimizing that. Anybody that ever got saved, it was because somebody had told them about Jesus Christ. I'm not minimizing it. Don't think that I am. But I'm merely saying that part of the reason that we lack power and we lack influence, part of the reason that we are, uh, for all practical uh, uh, intents and purposes, failures in the way of evangelism, is because we know how to tell them about Him, but we don't, we don't know how to tell Him about them. His compulsion was to go and to tell Abram, there's one that needs to be rescued. And I see in Abram a picture of the Savior. Let me give you three reasons. And one of them is sort of a theological reason. I hope that's okay. But look at verse 13. The Bible says, And there came one that had escaped and told Abram... Now, what's the next phrase? The Hebrew. Well, that's important. You say, why is that important? Well, that's important because that's the first use ever in the Word of God of the phrase the Hebrew. Now, there's a lot of debate about, about what that term Hebrew denotes this early in its usage. It becomes synonymous. A lot of people think that it's referring to those that were descendants of Eber, who was a descendant of Shem, and I think that very well could be. Others think it merely denotes those that are the descendants of Abraham. That, that side of things interests me greatly, and here's why. I believe that Abram represents the Savior because of his posterity. Any time in the Word of God that something is mentioned for the first time, uh, the law of first mention dictates to us that it carries certain traits and certain qualities that are going to be consistent all throughout the Word of God, or at least until there's a dispensational shift that necessitates a change in the qualities of that thought or of that object or of that person. And you say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying the first time you see it in the Bible, pay attention to it because it's important and there's going to be some truths that you can learn from. And I find this, that the first time that Hebrews mention in the Word of God, it points forward to that Hebrew of Hebrews, to that greatest of Jews, uh, to that man, Jesus Christ, that would come in the flesh, be made like unto his brethren, and would live and be perfect and sinless. I, I don't know about this, and you you. Listen, you can kick me out if you want to over, over saying it, but I, I, I believe this is probably true. I've always been of the opinion that Jesus Christ died as the Son of God for the sins of the world. Don't you believe that? Not just for the sins of a few, but He tasted death for every man. But I've always been of the opinion that Christ died as the Son of Man for the Jewish nation. What does the Bible say? Thou shalt call His name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Who are his people? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. You see, God had made a covenant relationship with the Jewish nation, 
The Jewish nation has broken that covenant relationship time and time and time again. And yet the Bible teaches us that one day uh, Christ is returning in power and in glory to set up an earthly kingdom and an earthly throne. The Bible says in that day that he would not uh, write his law upon stone tablets, but upon their hearts that every man would teach his neighbor that the Jewish nation would turn to him wholeheartedly. But what about their history? What about the sins they've committed? What about their breaking of the covenant? It's all been atoned for in the person of Jesus Christ, the perfect Jew. I think he's a picture of the Savior because of his posterity. He was Abraham, the Hebrew. But then notice the second thing, not only because of his posterity, but because of his pursuit. Now, I like this, and I hope you like it too. What does the Bible say? Abraham is dwelling in the plain of uh, Mamre, the Amorite. By the way, Mamre means fatness and denotes blessing. And uh, Mamre's brother was Eshcol, and that denotes a cluster, which you'd see in the book of Numbers chapter 13 when they brought the uh, great clusters of grapes. Uh, And then uh, the brother of Aner. These were confederate with Abram. And what happened? The Bible says in verse 14, And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 380 and pursued them unto Dan. This is significant to me for two reasons. One, because of the dividing that takes place after this, but then two, because of the place in which he pursued them. Do you know that when you and I were lost and undone without Christ, when when mankind had fallen into depravity and sinfulness, there was no way to be made that God made a way. And how did he do this? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, uh, to bear in his body our sins and to become our sins. But he didn't show up, uh, climb out of the manger and onto the cross. Instead, the Bible teaches that he lived a sinless and perfect life. Throughout that sinless and perfect life, the Bible teaches us that he called 12 men unto himself. Uh, These were his servants, so to speak. These were his trained army, so to speak. And uh, the Bible teaches us that throughout his entire ministry, that these men were close beside him. Uh, All of them except for Judas uh, came to know him as their Savior. All of them except Judas went on to do great things for him. But the Bible teaches us that there, there came a point. Christ would speak often of his crucifixion. And when he spoke of it, you know what he would call it? He would call it mine hour. Mine hour. He'd say, for this purpose came I into the world. Mine hour. You see, it's almost as though everything, in fact, I wouldn't say it's almost as though, I'd say it definitely is, that everything in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ was leading up to the place of Calvary. The Bible teaches us that Abram took his trained servants and he made a journey to a place by the name of Dan. Do you know the name Dan means judgment? Do you know that throughout Christ's entire earthly ministry, the entire thing that was in view the entire time was that he would be made our sin and would meet the place of judgment for you and I? All through his entire earthly ministry, he spoke of it. He'd say, I'm going, to be, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered to the chief priests and the elders and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again the third day. He opened blinded eyes. He healed uh, legs that were lame. Uh, he opened tongues that could not speak. But at the end of the day, the great and grand pursuit, the reason that he came, he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He was headed for Dan. He was headed for judgment. He was headed to be made sin for you and I. But then the Bible tells us, look at the next verse. I'm almost done. Don't get worried. Look what it says in verse 15. The Bible says, and he divided himself against them. Do you remember on the night before the crucifixion? 
Do you remember when the Bible says that the shepherd was smitten and the sheep were scattered? You see, he could go up to the place of judgment with the armies. But then when he got to the place of judgment, when he got to Dan, there was a change that took place. He was divided against himself. The army was split. The servants departed. And the Bible says that he pursued them where? Unto Hobah. Say, so what does that mean? Hobah, not Hobar, Hobah. You see, Hobah means a hiding place. There was only so far that the servants could go. And then it must be Abram to go into the hiding place. Do you remember (laughs) the trained army? They could follow him to the place of judgment. But then once he went into the place of judgment, or as the Bible calls it, the pavement, you remember? When he went into the place of judgment, he went in alone. And then when they put him upon the cross of Calvary, the, the entire world, it seemed, was standing by and watching what was taking place. And then all of a sudden, God pulled a curtain of darkness around. And there in the hiding place was the victory won. There in the hiding place was our sin dealt with. There in the hiding place. Where is this hiding place? I like this. I just really had fun with this, so I I assumed you would. I don't know if you will or not, but I am. The Bible says unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Why does the Bible tell us that? Well, I got to thinking about that. You know what Damascus means? It literally means a sack full of blood. That's appetizing, right? Or could we call it this, the place of blood? Damascus was the place of blood. The Bible says that he pursued unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Do you know that when Christ died for your sins and mine, the Bible teaches that the earthly tabernacle was but a shadow of heavenly things. Just as there was an earthly mercy seat, the Bible teaches us that there was a heavenly mercy seat. Do you know that that heavenly mercy seat, just as the earthly one was the throne of God when he dwelt amongst his people, the heavenly mercy seat pictures for us the throne of God in heaven. The Bible teaches us that Christ, when he had paid for your sin and mine, He ascended up into His Father and presented the last blood that would ever have to be shed to atone for sins. And then you know what happened? I like this. Left hand of Damascus. I I got the the left hand. You never hear the left hand talked about. But I thought, you know, some things are a matter of perspective. You see, the left hand to us would be the right hand of the Father. The left hand to us, we're looking at it, would be the right hand of the mercy seat. Can I say that Christ, when He died for your sins and mine, He paid our sin debt. He ascended into the heavens. He placed the blood upon the mercy seat. The Bible teaches uh, that when He ascended up from this earth, uh, He had come back down to earth. He had ministered amongst them for 40 days. Then He ascended up on high. The Bible says that He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Then I notice one more thing and I'm done. I want you to notice that he's not only a picture of the Savior because of his posterity and his pursuit, but finally because of his power. We see his power exhibited in two ways. First off, I want you to notice that Abram had power to redeem Lot. The Bible says that he chased him, he won the victory, and he brought Lot back. I see in Abram a picture of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ also has gone and fought the victory fought the battle, won the victory. And if we'll put our faith in Him, 
He's able to bring us out. Not just us, but look what it says. Brought all of the victuals, all of the goods, all of the possessions, all of the women. Listen to me. If, if God didn't save anything but you, you wouldn't have anything to complain about. But you know what kind of God that we've got? Most of us would testify that after God redeemed us, He's blessed us more than we could ever imagine. He hasn't just given us what He's promised. He's given us over and above what we could ever ask or think or expect because of His power to redeem. But then finally, because of His power to transform. The Bible tells us that Lot was Abraham's nephew. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Brother, the son of his brother Nahor. And yet the Bible tells us in verse 16 that Abraham brought again his brother Lot. You see, when Lot went into Sodom and into the battle, he was a nephew. But when Abram brought him out, now he's a brother. Do you know when you got saved, God didn't just redeem you, he transformed you. Now, I'll agree, we don't always live up to what God's done in our lives. I don't always live up to it. But do you know that no matter what I do, I'm still a brother. You know that Lot would go back into Sodom again, and he would have to be dragged out by the hand of an angel. But from that day forward, the Bible speaks of Lot as being just Lot, who vexed his righteous soul. See, a difference had been made that day in Lot's life. Some of you have family still in the slime pits, loved ones and co-workers. I know that... Now listen, if you're here today and you're not sure that you're saved, don't leave here before you get it settled. But I acknowledge on this Sunday morning, this rainy Sunday morning, most folks here would proclaim to know Christ as their Savior. And this morning, I'm, I'm keenly aware of that. But can I say that if that's you... If you're here and you say, Preacher, I know that I'm saved, then you're one that has escaped. But you got loved ones that are still in the slime pit. you got co-workers and friends and family. What do I do about that, Preacher? You go and you tell the man that can do something about it. You come and you, you talk to the one that can do something about it. You talk to that Hebrew of Hebrews. You talk to that one that has, you talk to that one that divided himself, went into the hiding place and won the battle so that he could redeem them and bring them unto himself. Oh, listen, church, prayer works. Prayer works. I'm not saying that prayer can superimpose itself on the obstinate will of another person. Now, God can do that, but I'm not saying that through prayer we can necessarily affect that. I understand they make their own decisions, but oh, let me tell you something. Prayer can move things in their life in such a way. Prayer can stir them in such a way that you've never expected. If you've got someone that God's burdened your heart with, I want you to come. I want you to pray with them.